Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepker. Welcome to the programme. So we've been discussing the AI summit uh, all week and the denouement, which was that fireside chat, that interview between Rishi Sunak and the omnipresent tech billionaire uh, Elon Musk. Quite an unusual thing for a prime minister to do. Caroline, what did you, what did you make of it? Look, I think had it been a corporate event that I'm sure many of our listeners go to regularly, I don't think anyone would have batted an eyelid. But I think the response from UK media and from me is that it was kind of bizarre. Um, it was dubbed a love fest, softball questions. There was a lot of kind of self-congratulatory thanks and praise, let alone the kind of weirdness of obviously the, the UK prime minister talking to the world's richest man, mm. but they're both wealthy individuals. Anyway, there's so much criticism that you could heap and that has sort of been heaped upon this. I sort of want to say that first and kind of get out of the way before we actually put that aside and kind of explore what they discussed for 40 minutes. Yeah, there was a lot of cynicism, wasn't there? A lot of, a lot of uh, sceptical voices, but I feel like that's always the case, isn't it? I, I thought, uh, I read a lot, of, a lot of places that it was awkward, but I, I mean, I didn't watch the whole thing, but just sort of scrolling through, it was a tiny bit awkward, but it, it, it wasn't too bad, was it? Look, I, listen, I think it was definitely awkward. I think the other underlying issue, though, and the, the problematic thing is who has more political power out of those two mm, men? That's and an interesting question. It basically, it's, well, my vote has got to be for Elon Musk. I mean, this is the individual who's, you know, um, got kind of internet connectivity and has been able to support that within Ukraine and Crimea. There's also a question around Gaza. So there's lots of kind of very political issues out of this it's not you know this is not a kind of person who politically is neutral either who is just a business leader so i think that's kind of where there are some um perhaps concerns and his job's not uh, up for up on the line no. later <laughs> in exactly. a year's time either but look okay put all of that kind of the personal issues aside what i think is fascinating that emerged from this tech summit seems to be that big tech firms perhaps will allow the idea that governments potentially governments should vet their artificial intelligence tools this whole summit over two days was meant to look at the cutting edge of ai elon musk seemed to agree in their conversation that there is a role for governments and regulators in this in sort of vetting it so it was an agreement that was signed up to by a number of countries um pretty tentative in terms of the agreement Mm. and also i'll put a little aside in there that elon musk to my mind was surprisingly positive about regulators very complimentary given that a lot of critics say that he's someone who actually is very challenging of oversight in his businesses so i think that's quite interesting but look you should actually just first of all listen to a bit of the exchange between rishi sunak and elon musk 
I do think overall that the potential is there for artificial intelligence, AI, to um, have most likely a positive effect um, and to create a future of abundance where there is no scarcity of goods and services. Uh, but but it, it is somewhat the, of the, the magic genie problem, where if you have a magic genie that can grant all the wishes, um, usually those stories um, don't end well. Yeah, he went on to call it the most disruptive force in history, not, not mincing his words. Uh, and he says there will come a point where no job is needed. Uh, and then he said, I don't know how you feel about that. And there was a sort of awkward uh, laugh from the audience. He then sort of paused and said, well, you can have a job if you want to for personal satisfaction. And I thought, hold on a minute. I mean, that's fine if you're a sort of, you know, you're very rich. But if no jobs are needed, then presumably, yeah. presumably most people won't have a job. Uh, so this <laughs> raises Look, enormous e- questions. Elon Musk has been very sceptical. He's known to be a sceptic around AI in, in the sense that, you know, he thinks that it could have sort of apocalyptic impacts in some some ways. And this has also been the debate within the industry, right, on AI about how much there should be focus on the here and now and whether on specific AI tools, how they might affect um, things like uh, racism or the depiction of people online or and then how much you think about the kind of even bigger um, idea of there perhaps being a digital super intelligence as Elon Musk was talking about. Um, I mean, I just think that the issue is is that actually AI technology is being adopted by workers. There have been polls to show that it is. We know that businesses are, are adopting it already. So frankly, it's about the speed of how this technology is arriving. Um, Musk saying that this summit would go down in history. So there's a sort of lot of debate, again, about how kind of tentative the regulatory thrust is. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, actually. Some of the adoption has been happening kind of organically, hasn't it? People are choosing to use AI because it works for them people are, are actually sort of picking and choosing and mm. so it's sort of creeping into our lives without it coming in a sort of top-down kind of way yeah but this is the first sort of um tentative agreement really to work on building government capacity actually to vet cutting edge ai so it is kind of the first step in terms of ai must compared it to you know vetting in the car industry or vetting in the satellite industry i mean we vet pharmaceutical companies so perhaps that's the kind of thinking behind it anyway i think it was pretty fascinating one little aside though as this is the bloomberg uk politics podcast Rishi Sunak did talk about a UK election in the UK probably next year. Yes. So that's the big politics yes. line out of it. We have confirmation it will not be in the tw- first 25 days of January, which I think we all probably assumed anyway. Yes. But at least we know it's got to be done by the 31st of December unless he changes his mind. Okay. So, look, what else did we learn then about the state of the economy this week? Of course, we had the Bank of England decision. It left interest rates unchanged yesterday, saying that it's much too early to talk about interest rate cuts. Yeah, the Bank of England isn't expecting a recession, but it does see the economy stalling until the middle of 2025. Remember in the past, before they said we were in for a recession, so that's changed uh, over the last few months. But higher interest rates are hitting borrowers with mortgage approvals dropping again in September. We're joining us now to discuss all of this is John Stepek, author of the excellent uh, Money Distilled newsletter. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. So the PM might be able to crow that inflation has halved by the end of the year, but uh, the economic growth outlook is looking pretty ropey, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is the problem. I mean, the PM, obviously, it was a fairly uh, uh, 
It, it seemed like a, a not a very risky proposition at the start of the year, and by the end of the year, he'll be wiping his brow that it actually has scraped in below, you know, the kind of the promise to half it, which has got nothing to do with the government anyway. Um, but the economic outlook, I mean, you're right. The, the tricky thing with the economic outlook is that, um, you know, as, as you said, last this time last year, the Bank of England basically thought we were already in recession and that we were going to spend all of this year in recession. And as it turned out, we didn't. Um, and now the difficulty is thinking about, well, what is going to happen next? And I think that came across very much in the kind of NPC's discussion yesterday. So on the one hand, you've got, they've, they've kind of held rates and markets are now convinced that come next year, they will be cutting rates. But the bank is sort of pushing against that because clearly they probably still feel somewhat embarrassed by not having tackled inflation hard enough earlier mm -hmm. on. Um, so a lot of that's to do with the kind of the, the psychology of the bank. But as for what actually happens next year, I mean, I think they said there's roughly a 50-50 chance of recession. And, you know, okay, that's a coin toss. So it doesn't sound like a very useful forecast, but at least it's quite an honest one. Um, because, you know, things really could go any number of ways. It's not clear yet that the impact of rising interest rates has you know, we, we haven't seen how that has fed through yet. Mm -hmm. And from various, you know, company results this week, it's not clear yet that the economy is slowing down to a massive extent either. So I do think it's, you know, we're, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, and obviously we understand that the economic backdrop is absolutely crucial for, for voters and for consumers who have the issue of the cost of living crisis, but then also for the general election that's going to be for, as we now know, ne next year. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, interest rates being left unchanged, I mean, people with mortgages and people thinking of buying a home and businesses, of course, they want to understand and know when interest rates will start to come down. So it was something that we did try to get a better steer on the markets. Everyone wants to understand this. But uh, Bloomberg's Guy Johnson had a good go at it with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey. He tried very hard to get an answer about actually what the outlook for interest rates is and whether they'll go down and when. Here they are with that conversation. Our job is to get inflation down to the 2% target. Now, we've made a lot of progress this year, and I believe we'll make more progress in the rest of this year, but we've still got a long way to go. So... You know, our very clear message is we think the policy is having a restrictive effect at the moment. But I'm afraid we're going to have to maintain this stance for what we describe as an extended period of time. Yeah. What, is, what is an extended period of time? Is that a year? Is well, that six months? How, how do you, we don't I, what, know how do you, so how do you what, make that language work? What, what I described, you know, we described in the report is, is really two, we took two approaches. One is to take the market curve yep. as it was you know, a week or so ago. And that delivers inflation coming back to target, you know, broadening on the sort of two-year horizon. Uh, we also took, the, took a constant rate path, just maintaining it throughout the next yep. three years at, um, at the current rate. Brings it back a little bit quicker, but there's not much between them. So the, the key point here is, yeah, we're going to have to maintain this stance to be yep. absolutely assured that inflation is coming back to 2%. The point in there is, though, that the market forecast, which does have cuts priced into it, albeit it was a week ago and there was only one of them, yeah. it does have a cut price in. And that mm. gets you to a situation where you've got inflation basically back down to targets within two years. It significantly reduces the risk of a recession. Isn't that, therefore, the most probable outcome when it comes to the interest rate path, i.e. at least pricing in 
one well, cut during that horizon. Actually, ni neither of those two um, paths had a recession in them. What, what they both have is very subdued growth. That's because at, at, at the point when we did this, but a reduced risk of recession. Well, I mean, they, they are slightly reduced. There was only about 25 basis points difference between the two paths if you average it out over three years. So there's not much between these paths. And, and that supports the yep. story that we're saying, which is, look, we're going to have to maintain this stance you know, yep. for an extended period Wh to ensure why, why we get to 2%. Why have you felt, though, today that you've needed to reiterate that so strongly? The language is, is, a, is a little bit more hawkish. Well, I think for two reasons. One is because we still see the risks to inflation as being on the upside at the okay. moment. And it's important not to, for that message not to get lost. Yeah, and there are several reasons why we think the risks are on the upside, but they are still on the upside. Secondly, if you don't mind me saying so, because everybody's started to ask the question about cuts. <laughs> so in a way, I think I have to, and we have to sort of lean against that and say, no, you know, we've got to maintain restrictive policies. Okay. Let's come back to that. Everybody started to talk about cuts. The market has priced it, started to price yeah. cuts. You're saying you do need to therefore lean in on that. Well, I'm not leaning against the curve that we used the other, you know, when we did yeah. the forecast, because frankly, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of difference between those two views of the, the constant throughout and the market then. But any more than that? Would you want to lean in on that? The well, what I'm going to say to this, if, if the market has taken from what we have published today a view that we are leaning towards more cuts, then I'm afraid I will lean against that, yes. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey speaking to Bloomberg's Guy Johnson. Uh, John, they were talking there about uh, the forecast for, for next year of subdued growth rather than recession. The governor wanted to make that very clear. But I do wonder, do we sometimes get our knickers a bit in a twist here about the, the R word? And my colleagues at Bloomberg Economics won't forgive me for this, but we, you know, we get very <laughs> obsessed with whether we're in recession or not. But the truth is, is that a recession, which is two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth, can be very mild. And the difference with subdued growth and recession, it's slightly dancing on the head of a pin, isn't it? It is. No, it absolutely is. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that, they, you know, we call it the technical definition is two quarters in a row of GDP contracting. But the, the technical makes it suggest that, you know, somebody out there in the economics world won a Nobel Prize for coming <laughs> up with this definition. It wasn't, it was plucked out of thin air. Um, so, you know, th mm. this is not, a, uh, you know, as you say, subdued growth and a mild recession are kind of the same thing. Um, and it's only whenever people start actually, you know, losing their jobs en masse that it goes from being a kind of, you know, mildly kind of rubbishy kind of growth to actually, no, this is really serious. Um, and I think that that's probably, in some ways, a, a better kind of definition of the mm. difference. You know, you can either be in a boom, or you can be kind of struggling along as we are just now, or you can be in, you know, proper trouble, which is, as I say, whenever people are losing their jobs. Um, but I mean, I don't know about your listeners, but I'm listening to that whole conversation there. Um, and I did, I liked the way that you know, Guy tried to get, you know, something out of Andrew Bailey in terms of where the interest rates are going to go. But it's this kind of obsession with a quarter point here or there and this idea that somehow the Bank of England can kind of manage the path of the economy simply by tweaking, you know, one kind of key interest rate. Whereas what it's actually doing most of the time is is chasing the market. I mean, it was chasing the market and catching up with what the market had already priced in all the way up. And there's a fair chance that it'll end up doing that all the way down as well. So, you know, I, th I think that we we have a, a sort of slightly 
uh, silly amount of faith or belief in this idea that the Bank of yeah. England is kind of driving the car of the economy. And it's not. I mean, it's not. You know, I mean, so much about inflation depends on whether or not, uh, for example, the conflict in the Middle East kind of spreads beyond Israel and Gaza. Um, and, you know, whether that turns into a wider conflagration, which would then drive up oil prices, which would then cause, you know, all manner of economic chaos. And it wouldn't matter what the Bank of England did with interest rates um, no, you know, to, I, to kind of alleviate that. And also, I, I pick up on that point just by watching the press conference yesterday. You know, so many journalists were asking about, as you say, a quarter point here. And the, the committee was sort of at pains to say it's this sluggish kind of economic picture that the UK has. You know, who is really in charge? It, it is businesses growing that are in charge of economic growth, really. As you, uh, you know, and the kind of, I suppose, the fate, the trajectory of the UK economy I would draw the parallel to a lot of things that I've been reading about. Also, the the public health inquiry, the COVID-19 inquiry. You know, who is really in charge? Is it the ministers who are there for nine or 10 months? Or is it actually um, the civil servants and the whole of the NHS that was sort of in charge of this one? Anyway, I draw some parallels. Just, you know, it's Friday and I've been thinking too much, I suspect. <laughs> but, John, look. What about the cost of living crisis? We are clearly in the tunnel heading for Christmas. I was watching the M&S Christmas ad. Uh, Sainsbury's oh, yes. had some results <laughs> out. Throw that in there. Um, how is the poor UK consumer actually faring, do you think? I mean, this is the... I thought actually those were really good points about the COVID inquiry. And there's also a point at which we, we're missing a lot of the point when we discuss these things. You know, we're talking about WhatsApp messages that we already heard about two years ago. But anyway, I'll move back on to your question. <laughs> um, so the, the UK consumer, when you look at it, for a start, the fact that interest rates, the market's now pricing in interest rates actually falling next year, will continue to feed through to mortgage rates more than likely. So one thing that this kind of pause has done and this is as much to do in many ways with the Fed pausing as well, because sort of the market has now got it in its head that that's us. We've, we've reached the peak and we might stay there for a while, but the next move globally is going to be downwards. So probably mortgage rates are not going to go up from here. And when you come to refinance, if you're panicking about it just now, you'll probably find that it's not going to be as bad as you might have thought it was perhaps six months ago. So, for example, now you can get a five-year fix if you want to remortgage and you've got a decent amount of equity in your house at below 5%. And you couldn't have said that, you know, six months ago. So that's going to take some pressure off relative to where the consumer maybe thought they were going to be. And then if you look at, like, the, the various reports coming through from the supermarkets, it's very clear that inflationary pressures are easing. It doesn't mean that prices are coming down yet, although there are a few kind of pockets where there's outright deflation. And if things like food prices end up coming back and, and falling, then over time, you would expect that to kind of food to, sorry, to, to feed through into supermarket prices. Um, and so, as I say, so far, the majority of companies outside of the, the house building sector, which is a, being affected, obviously, by the collapse in transactions, are not expressing a great deal of fear about the outlook. I mean, the other yeah, one was next. Yeah. You know, Next kind of like bumped up his profit outlook for something like the fourth time in a row. Now, I know that Next has a tendency to under-promise and over-deliver, but the point is nobody's saying, you know, this is going to be you know, the kind of... You, you always hear there's going to be a high street bloodbath 
um, and nobody's kind of saying that about this Christmas yet. Um, so it's not clear that the consumer is in as much trouble as we always assume, particularly if wages keep going up. John, brilliant stuff. I was wanted to do an end on that positive note, actually. You had a great email out on Monday called Reasons to be Cheerful. If you want to read John's uh, thoughts in his Money Distilled email, which comes out every day, uh, it's available from all good uh, search engines. Thanks so much, John Stepek. So did you know this, Ewan? The UK seems to be adopting another US political tactic. Oh, another one. Another one. <laughs> but I love it because... UK voters apparently are rebelling. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's a new Ipsos survey which shows that most Britons think politicians are exploiting culture wars as an electoral tactic in order to win support. This has been written up by uh, Bloomberg's Julian Harris, who joins us on the show now. Julian, interesting stuff this. So voters actually see this as a serious problem. It seems like it. The, the biggest, this is a survey that's been done over several years, which is always useful because then, of course, you can see how things changed. Um, and one of the biggest jumps um, in the survey is the number of people who, as you said, think that politicians exploit culture wars, that they either, the exact wording is, they either invent or exaggerate them for their own kind of electoral advantage or tactics. Um, and the number that think that it went up from 44% a few years ago in 2020 to 62% now. Um, so there is there is this clearly kind of growing suspicion that, mm. that this is this is something the politicians are up to. Um, on the one hand, I'm cheered at the sensible British public for seeing through sort of attempts to press their hot buttons. Um, on the other hand, does it dampen down? debate around serious or perhaps controversial issues you know i could name trans rights or abortion rights or lots of other issues perhaps free speech though that one in there too is there any concern well i think those things um are very much like part of the increasingly part of the public awareness i mean what a strange thing this survey showed is that while people do kind of blame politicians and they also point a finger at the media as well that they they do actually have a growing kind of awareness and growing um uh, opinions towards culture wars themselves so that there's kind of a bit of a bit of finger pointing but but it is also seeping in at the same point so this is for the first time a majority of people said that culture wars are a serious problem for for the uk society and for politics and across all of the results of the survey you see that people have basically have much stronger opinions on this on on, on, on these areas than, than they did a few years ago interesting to look at how the two parties are divided on this because the the conservatives have been accused most of of using woke issues uh, and these identity issues to, to 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 fuel their base but it isn't entirely one-sided isn't it what tell us about the political divide here well there it is really stark very stark political divide um so like well, one thing that the survey showed is interesting is whether the word woke is considered an insult or a compliment and i think most of us have realized that over recent years that it has swung from from a compliment to an insult to some degree um but how people feel about this is radically different depending on whether they tend to vote tory or tend to vote labor um, so whether it being only 10% of Tories say they consider woke a compliment now, whereas that's 42%, four times as many for Labour voters. And whether it's an insult or not, if you're a Conservative voter, you're twice as likely to think that it is an insult as as a compliment. 
Um, mm. So there's been um, there's there's been a, a very strong shift. As you said, like this, it, it was really interesting. I thought at the party conferences because we did have just far more um, culture wars um, talk coming from the conservative one, which of course came first. And we even had it, Rishi Sunak's speech, which which can seem um, strange because he 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 it it doesn't often seem natural territory for him, but he still went into it a little bit in his speech. And when it came to Starmer, of course, um, which was a week later, so you know he had time to to digest that. And his his set piece speech very very much to, um, steered away from from culture wars. So it was a very clear um, tactic in, in two different directions from the parties. Mm. Yeah, look, I'm afraid I'm old enough to to um, be reminded of, uh, you know, the phrase political correctness, of mm. health and safety. These are these phrases that start off sort of meaning something quite concrete and then they become weapons and insults and used by different groups and sort of woke, I think, has obviously fallen into that category. Mm. Um, do you think we're going to see a lot more of this, I guess, is the question, Julian, going into, as we know, a general election next year? Or, or again, will that divide on party lines? I think it will divide on party lines. I think it's it's not a coincidence that, that the Conservatives um, are trying to use this, um, whereas Labour want to have a sort of steadier ship um, and avoid getting 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 sort of t- torn apart by issues that, that for them can sometimes be tricky, which we, we did see in the past with, with sometimes um, their stuff over transgender rights, for example, it got them in a bit of a twist. So that's a, that's a risk for Starmer, which I think he just rather stay completely away from um the survey showed that it's it's interesting when you ask people what they care about going into an election they they very much don't care about classic culture war areas those things poll very very low um the transgender rights that i mentioned very very low and um, even race relations extremely low like people basically care about the nhs and the economy which is what we tend to think and that's still very much the case um, the people okay. um, were these academics at, sorry, at, at Kings who said, though, that there is this increasing seeping in, which which can then affect how people think about those topics as well. So we have this strange situation in America where lots of people um, on one wing think the economy is doing very badly, even though the evidence shows that it's not. So often as culture wars kind of ramp up, which they seem to be, it then can affect the, the bigger issues. Interesting. Julian, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's Julian Harris there taking us through that Ipsos survey of what Britons think about culture wars and how a lot of them see politicians as exploiting it. Yeah, I wonder how views on this will change uh, if once the economy is in a stronger position, because obviously when the economy uh, is is tricky, that dominates debate. And I wonder if these issues will come more to the fore uh, in the future. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Our audio engineer today was Marufal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.